What's up, everybody? This is Danny, and I'm back for another episode of the all-new, all-awesome podcast, and hope you guys are doing well. Uh, just a reminder, you can always follow me on Twitter at, at Danny Barham, just my first name and my last name as one word. Um, and then you can also find the all-new, all-awesome on Facebook, like the group, and you'll be sure to never miss an episode. So tell your friends, tell your family, get them on board. Uh, we want to get all the listeners possible. And uh, man, a lot going on, as always, in the world of entertainment. The big thing I thought I would just talk for a minute about this week is the fact that uh, the box office is starting to uh, come back in this uh, post-vaccine world. Um, and I know, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty still. We're still not sure how these variants are going to play out in terms of COVID. We're still not sure um, if we can truly get to a state of uh, herd immunity. But, you know, if we're trying to be optimistic here, um, in places like L.A., uh, in LA County, uh, where I am, uh, there is a pretty large percentage of people that are vaccinated and slowly, but surely it does feel like things are a little bit, at least getting back to normal. And certainly a big indicator of that is the movies where, uh, we just, this past weekend had, uh, fast and furious nine open to a really big box office number of $70 million. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say exactly how that compares to if things were just completely normal, if there had not been a pandemic, you know, would we have seen a similar number for the movie? Um, and it's really hard to say because there are so many factors uh, that go into that. You know, if you look at the Fast and Furious franchise, Obviously, we're now on the ninth, actually, kind of tenth movie. If you if you count Hobbs and Shaw, the spinoff, um, and you know Hobbs and Shaw, when that came out a few years ago, it performed a bit under what other titles in the franchise had done. Um, and Fast and Furious Nine actually surpassed the box office for Hobbs and Shaw, and again did pretty well relative to. Uh, other films in the franchise, I believe Fast and Furious 8 made about uh, 80 million or so dollars. So not that much lower for this one. And, um, you know, I guess there is the argument too that uh, this was the movie that, you know, people were really looking forward to going back to the theater to see. You know, there had been a big marketing campaign specifically about you know, how this was the movie to go back to the theaters to see. And Vin Diesel was in these ads and promos, you know, welcoming people back to the movies. It was even parodied on Saturday Night Live uh, a while back. And so um, not only that, by the way, but I mean, the fact that this was originally supposed to come out in 2020. And, you know, there had already been like, two years worth of Super Bowl ads for this movie. And uh, it's just uh, uh, PR and press and, and promotion that goes back for multiple years now. So there was a lot of built-in hype for this ninth movie. Uh, you know, they had Justin Lin back as the director who had done, uh, you know, parts five and six, as well as Tokyo Drift. Um, you had John Cena coming in as the, uh, villain of the movie, um, and, and most of the main cast members were back. So, you know, there was a lot of, of ways that this movie was sort of primed and ready to do really well at the box office. And so it made $70 million. That's the highest that we've seen for, for any movie since uh, the very beginning, or actually, I believe, since 2019, because at the very beginning of 2020... You had Bad Boys for Life, which did quite well. Um, you didn't have a lot of other huge movies. If you remember Birds of Prey, 
sort of did okay during that uh, pre-pandemic window in 2020. Um, but then since the pandemic, we've seen uh, Congress Godzilla do well. I think that was in kind of the $50 million range. But so this Fast and Furious 9 is is the biggest movie that we've seen since, you know, 2020, since uh, I believe the end of 2019. And now the question I think is, are we going to see more movies doing in this range of box office? Um, of course, the big one coming up is going to be Black Widow, which will be uh, the weekend after after this weekend. And that one's going to be interesting. Under normal circumstances, you might assume that it would surpass Fast and Furious 9. However... There's also the Disney Plus of it all, where Black Widow will be available uh, on Disney Plus for a premium sort of extra price point to rent it uh, digitally. And again, I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to see this in the theater, and it's going to do a pretty big number in the theater. Um, But that being said, there's certainly going to be a contingent of people who watch it at home, um, you know, certain parts of the country are not doing great with COVID right now. And, um, you know, there may be people with families who think it's a better deal to, to watch it at home than, than go to the theater. Um, you know, it would not be as good of a deal if you're just watching it by yourself or with one other person. But if you have a couple kids, you know, paying $30 or whatever to get it on Disney plus is, pretty compelling and so it will be very interesting to see how black widow does um and then we've got beyond that movies like jungle cruise uh you know the matrix later in the fall um it's gonna be i think it's gonna be a relatively light summer uh for the rest of the summer in terms of huge blockbuster movies Um, It's crazy to think that it's already July um, and, you know, it still feels like we're in May. I don't know. It's just it's it's incredible that it's already July. But um, I think it's going to be a while until we start to see a string of high performing blockbusters like we would in a normal year. Um, I think my sense right now is that people are sort of very carefully picking and choosing their spots to go to the theater um, and are going to be much more selective about when they go to the theater than they normally would um, because there is still a feeling of risk of going and, you know, people are not going to go for just any movie, I think. So we'll see what happens. Um, And all of this could change depending on what happens with COVID. You know, hopefully it changes for the better where, uh, we just feel so confident about the state of things that things just normalize more quickly than we would have expected. Um, Of course, there is the other potential for uh, things to get worse with COVID, which would be not good. Um, But people may decide to just keep staying home for a while longer. So we'll see what happens. There's still a lot of variables and a lot of uncertainty. Um, But my hope is that Fast and Furious 9's success is sort of a preview of what's to come with the movies and that soon we will be more back to a normal state of things. It is interesting because this weekend, July 4th weekend, there's just a glut of uh, streaming original movies and not necessarily a huge movie at the box office. We do have... Uh, the new Purge coming out. We have uh, Boss Baby 2 coming out. Um, and then the second weekend of Fast and Furious 9. Um, but then on the streaming side of things, you've got um, several movies, including Fear Street on Netflix that's getting good reviews uh, based on the R.L. Stein books. You've got Tomorrow War with Chris Pratt on Amazon. Um, you've got the new Steven Sodenberg movie that's also uh, coming to Netflix. 
or actually it might be HBO Max, I'm forgetting, uh, but coming to one of those uh, platforms. And uh, and then, you, you know, you can't forget that you've got stuff like a new episode of Loki coming to Disney Plus like it does every week. Um, and so some people might say, hey, I can get my Marvel fix for right now uh, from Loki. So maybe I don't need to go to the movies this weekend. So, you know, it does feel like the studios are sort of tentatively dipping a toe back into the blockbuster waters. And uh, it's going to take some time for things to truly ramp up. And and of course, let's not forget that, you know, all, all a lot of the productions were delayed over the last year because of COVID. So the, the pipeline has also just slowed down a little bit. We're getting kind of a mix of holdovers from 2020. Um, and it's going to be a while, you know, we're, you know, we're only just starting to see some of the movies being filmed now that will release later this year or into 2022. So again, it's going to be really interesting. Um, as someone who likes to, uh, predict box office, I think it's going to be tough to predict for, for a while. And it's going to be very volatile and um, subject to change every week, depending on how things go with COVID. And and I do think that more than ever before, you know, there's always been, you know, a big new TV show is coming out or the Olympics are starting or a big new video game comes out. But I think that kind of thing more than ever is going to have an effect on the theatrical box office where you might see a new movie coming out on Netflix or Amazon or a big new TV show premiering or a big new game premiering that will really substantially affect the box office more than ever before because it's all really thrown together um, into one giant blender in most people's minds. And people only have so much time to, to spend on entertainment on a given week or weekend um, so it's a, it's a new world. It's a new world. But, um, like I said, I do hope the box office is back to, to at least a, a, a decent extent. And I hope that people start to feel more comfortable going to the movies. I can say that, and I'll talk more about this, uh, in a bit, but, uh, I really enjoyed going to see Fast and Furious 9 in a theater. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm glad I got to have that experience. So I hope I hope everyone does too. And I hope it's safe. I hope it continues to get even more safe in the months ahead. So uh, with that said, I'll be right back with my first pick of the week. All right, so for my first pick of the week, I'm going to seek right from that intro into talking about the big movie of this past week, which was F9, The Fast Saga. Let me see if I'm saying that right here. I feel like the naming conventions for this series are always all over the map. But uh, yes, it is indeed F9, The Fast Saga a.k.a. the latest movie in the storied Fast and Furious franchise. Um, so I will just say also that, of course, you know, um, I have some uh, work affiliation with this movie. Uh, I've worked on this franchise in the past. But everything I'm saying now is purely as a fan of the movies and of the franchise. Um, so just keep that in mind. Uh, but I, like many, have become a big fan of all things uh, Fast and Furious over the last several years. I think, you know, when the first movie came out, I didn't think a ton of it. You know, I remember thinking it was fun, but you know, obviously it was sort of a, a take on a point break and, um, you know, it just seemed like a fun movie that uh, I don't think anyone expected it to become what it became. But I think, again, like a lot of people, uh, it was Fast and Furious 5 
the first movie directed by uh, Justin Lin and the first movie that brought in The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, to be in the ensemble, that was the movie that kind of took my fandom of the franchise to a whole other level because that was the movie where it went from kind of these smaller you know, uh, movies about kind of a, a group of thieves and sort of a much more like street level type of story to these big, bombastic, almost James Bond-like uh, globetrotting adventure movies. And, uh, you know, it seemed at the time like a like an improbable sort of shift in the franchise, but that fifth movie really pulled it off and was a fantastic uh, movie that just was incredibly entertaining, had great action scenes. It really emphasized sort of the ensemble nature of the cast that had grown into the franchise. And um, it really felt almost like a superhero movie um, just with cars uh, instead of capes. And, from the point of Fast Five onward, I've just been a huge fan of the series. Um, and, you know, each one has somehow just gotten bigger than the previous movie. Um, my favorite, I would say, is still uh, Fast and Furious 7, which had, you know, a very emotional component to it because of the real-life death of Paul Walker. And, you know, that sort of combined with just... Um, James Wan coming on and just doing these incredible action scenes and um, just completely killing it with the action. Um, that that movie is probably my favorite in the series, but I got to say F9 is, is up there um, in a lot of ways for pure entertainment value alone. I mean, it's got some of the absolute craziest action sequences that we've ever seen in the series um for example the the, the movie opens with this incredible uh, chase sequence vehicular chase sequence kind of in the in this jungle setting um that just you know you ha you've got to see it that's it's the part in the trailer that you might have seen where uh you know vin diesel and, and michelle rodriguez are driving and they sort of come to this rickety bridge and the bridge collapses and they somehow like harpoon themselves onto the bridge and swing like Tarzan in their car across this chasm in the jungle. And it's so ridiculous and over the top, but it's also just awesome. And it's the exact kind of thing that you want to see on the biggest screen possible in the theater. Um, so, you know, again, like seeing this movie in the theater, it, it was a real treat. And it's, it was a, one of the perfect movies to have as one of those first experiences back in the, in the movie theater. So, you know, I, I luckily did see this one at the uh, good old Dolby Cinema in the uh, AMC Burbank 16, which has great picture and sound and really booming audio. And it was it was awesome seeing it. Uh, in that theater and with the audience that was applauding and, and laughing. And, um, you know, again, this movie, as many have sort of pointed out and joked about, like, it just goes to crazy extremes uh, in terms of the plot and, and the way some of the action plays out where, you know, even just in the trailer, they sort of, tease the fact that some of the characters as many fans have wanted to see they actually go into outer freaking space in this movie and uh that's just one of the crazy things that happens there's a there's a a, a few action scenes that all play up the fact of these kind of magnet weapons that that vin diesel and his crew have have found and they, they attach these magnets to their cars and they use them as a weapon to cause all kinds of destruction and chaos as they're, as they're driving um, and sort of being chased by these villains. And there's some just crazy uh, 
action sequences that use these magnets as sort of the driving uh, plot device of those scenes. And again, just completely insane, uh, completely ridiculous. Uh, the movie also um, gives us a lot. I mean, so, well, to take a step back, like, you know, if you're familiar with the Fast franchise, there's this crazy level of continuity from movie to movie where, you know, a lot of franchises, like you have sort of James Bond on one extreme where each movie to an extent sort of resets it, uh, resets itself from the movie before. And, and there's not really continuity uh, that, that strictly flows from one movie to another. Fast and Furious is the opposite where uh, they really treat the plot line of every movie as, as very hallowed and uh, they really take great pains to incorporate all the plot developments of the previous movies into the new movie. And so it's much more of a soap opera type of storyline that really continues from movie to movie. Um, and, you know, they go to these crazy lengths to explain things or fill plot holes or retcon things as needed. So, you know, in the previous film, we found out that Han, the, the star of Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, uh, who had previously been killed in the movies was still alive. And so now in this movie, he's sort of fully back, but we have to get an explanation of, of why he's alive. And, you know, the movie goes to great pains to kind of retcon what happened and explain how he's, how he's still around. And so that's the kind of franchise this is. And, you know, occasionally it can lead to some grown worthy moments, but, it is also really cool. It gives the, the franchise a comic book type of feel um, where they're always giving you those explanations and like building out and expanding the world of the franchise, which is cool. And they always bring back old characters like this movie brings back a number of supporting characters we haven't seen in a while. Um, there's a ton of callbacks to the previous movies. Um so you don't need to have seen every Fast and Furious movie to enjoy this, but if you have seen them, there's a ton of little moments that are kind of for the fans. Um, and then there is this, like I was saying, um, a pretty in-depth backstory that's given in this movie through flashbacks, you know, that introduces John Cena's character as the uh, long lost brother of, of Dom, uh, Vin Diesel's character. And John Cena um, kind of returns into the life of Dom. But through these flashbacks, we find out kind of the origin story of the two brothers. And we see uh, two actors who are quite good uh, playing like young Vin Diesel and young John Cena as teenagers. Um, and we see kind of what drove a rift between the two brothers. And uh, the flashback scenes are actually pretty good and entertaining and like i said the actors are both good um and you know of course there's always the question of like how did we never hear about this brother before in all of you know nine movies but uh it's okay i mean that's the kind of thing that this franchise sort of you know takes in stride and just you got to just go with the flow a little bit um and you know, what the movie and I think this franchise as a whole tends to do well is just those, it gives you those big, you know, comic booky uh, moments where, you know, without spoiling anything, you'll get, you know, one character turning his back on another character or one character kind of, you think they're going to betray everyone, but then they don't. And, you get those big, just soapy moments uh, and that the series, you know, it always plays everything straight. There's, there's always an earnestness to the storytelling that, you know, again, occasionally you'll almost kind of laugh at it, but it makes for a very entertaining movie and something very different than what you see in say a Marvel movie that's always kind of winking at the audience. Um, I feel like the earnestness of the Fast and Furious fr franchise is always 
kind of something that makes it unique and uh and that gets it you know to have such passionate fans um and you know the other thing too is again because there is such a devotion to continuity and world building the movie this movie is really good at giving each character like a good moment um or multiple good moments so like michelle rodriguez gets some really cool moments even if she's not front and center the entire movie she gets some really cool stuff to do and they do a nice job of kind of building on her relationship with dom as well um you know charlize theron is back in the movie as kind of this uber villain cypher and she's only you know her screen time is relatively short but she gets some great little lines and gets to be really villainous and uh, plays a key part in the story. And, you know, Jordana Brewster gets some nice moments and, um, you know, obviously Ludacris and Tyrese Gibson, uh, they have some funny moments and they get to go into space together. So uh, they get some real standout sequences Um, and, and the list goes on. Uh, oh, I'll, I'll also call out uh, Natalie Emmanuel, who, you know, probably has her biggest role yet in this movie that she's had in the franchise and really kind of seems comfortable in the shoes of her kind of, you know, hacker, computer genius type of character. Um, and she gets some good scenes. Like she has a great scene where um, she has to drive this truck with all the other characters in it and she doesn't know how to drive and it's really funny and uh you know well done and and all the characters you know i think again what what makes this series so endearing is that the characters all really do like each other and you know the joke is never on the characters so much it's more them laughing with each other and you know obviously the cliche is like these movies are all about family but um, even though it's something to joke about, it's also like, again, what actually makes these movies very endearing. Um, and so, you know, even down to the fact that obviously Paul Walker, you know, sadly is tragically no longer with us. Um, but, you know, even that character of Brian that he, he played in the movies, you know, even without actually appearing, he still gets some moments um, in kind of unique and creative ways in this movie. And uh, man, I mean, again, these movies are so earnest and they're, but they're also so ridiculous and over the top. You, you always go in thinking there's no way I would get emotional at a fast and furious movie, but there's actually a couple moments in this movie uh, in particular one where they sort of pay tribute to Paul Walker, where, you know, you might get misty eyed uh, because again, they play it so straight and they're so earnest about paying tribute to him and honoring him that you can't help but get a little emotional about it. Um, But all that said, I mean, the real fun of these movies, especially in their sort of current incarnation is just how ridiculous and how insane they get. Um, You know, there's one sequence uh, where Vin Diesel is chasing John Cena throughout the streets of Edinburgh, uh, Scotland. And John Cena is like zip lining from building to building and Vin Diesel's chasing him. And it's just like this never ending (laughs) sequence that you just have to laugh at because Cena is seemingly ziplining across the entire city. Um, And somehow Vin Diesel is chasing him on foot and it's just absurd, but it's awesome. And, uh, you know, the whole series kind of has this like pro wrestling sort of mentality, which makes it a good fit for someone like Cena and made it a good fit previously for, for Dwayne Johnson, where, you know, it's all about these big spectacular, sequences that might make no logical sense but are just very entertaining and are are designed to make you really root for the good guys um to overcome the odds and beat the bad guys and 
um you know the it really is just pro wrestling as a movie series you have you know face turns and heel turns you have uh you know like literally <laughs> one of the climactic sequences in this movie uh there's cars that essentially suplex uh a giant truck um through the power of magnets um so you get you get literally wrestling maneuvers as at key moments in this franchise um but yeah i found f9 to just be immensely enjoyable um and basically exactly what i wanted from this franchise and from this movie and again like especially now when we've been out of theaters and it's been a while since we've seen a big movie like this on the big screen. I was just kind of grinning ear to ear throughout the entire movie. And uh, I was just very pleased with the whole, with the whole thing. So if you're just looking for a good time, a great action movie, I honestly cannot recommend F9 enough. Um, and it certainly um, has some of the craziest action scenes and some of the most fun moments that we've yet seen in the series. So definitely recommend it. Check it out. And if you haven't seen the movies, you know, what are you waiting for? You got to do a marathon. Get on it. Uh, you know, Vin Diesel would would want you to. So uh, check out the new movie, and uh, I'll be right back with my second pick of the week. All right, for my second pick of the week, uh, I wanted to talk about another movie that released uh, recently, which is the, the new movie from Disney and Pixar, uh, which is Luca. Um, so I watched Luca on Disney+. Plus. It is actually not in theaters. It went directly to Disney+, Plus, which is an interesting move. Um I guess there's sort of the the potential concern that you know families are pretend are, are sort of more hesitant right now to go to the movies since kids, uh, younger kids in particular, are uh, not yet vac- vaccinated for the most part. Um, so yeah, it's interesting, but. Um, you know, I, I did really enjoy Luca, and um, I do think it's a movie uh, that kids in particular will really enjoy. I think uh, younger kids will really like the movie. Um, and it is, you know, it's interesting because historically, I do think of Pixar movies as the sort of animated movies that... Um, you know, have a lot of appeal beyond the kid market and um, the kid demo. And uh, a lot of times there's an, there's a lot of very adult themes in these movies and a a sophistication that uh, often separates them out from more traditional Disney animated movies. Um, I would say that Luca does have some of that kind of beneath the surface, but I would also say that in many ways it's much more of a simple uh, movie than your typical Pixar film. It is um, a very kind of simple plot, a very simple message, and not to say that's not a negative. Uh, it's just to say that it's um, you know a, a film that. Uh, I think there's there's a lot for people for kids to enjoy, and there's not necessarily the complexity of theme or plotline that you would see in something like uh, a Wall-E or Inside Out or Coco. Um, I would not. I, I would say this is a very different movie than those films that are sort of the Pixar classics, um, so to speak. Um, but yeah, Luca is a story about uh, a boy who's actually essentially like, uh, I don't know if you'd call it like a mer person or um, a, he's a sea creature, basically. 
um, and he lives in the ocean underwater with his family, and they live in sort of this magical version of reality where if they go up on land, uh, then they become human while they're on land, and then they become a, a sea creature again when they go back in the ocean. But going on land is considered very taboo and something that they aren't really supposed to do, especially the kids. Um, and so basically the boy, uh, Luca, he ends up meeting this friend um, who's sort of a, you know, uh, he, he's a bit more sophisticated. Um, he lives kind of on his own uh, without any parents. Uh, and his name is Alberto. And he sort of befriends uh, the slightly younger Luca and, and sort of encourages him to venture onto land um, and go into this sort of neighboring village um, that is, is near where Luca lives in the ocean and explore the human world. And so basically the movie is about how these two friends sort of bond and have these adventures in the human world and learn kind of what it is to be human. Um, and the movie is really, you know, it's about friendship. It's about the bond between these two friends. And it's about sort of discovering, you know, who you really are and embracing kind of the different sides of yourself where, um, you know, all these sea creatures sort of have these dual, this duality to them where they're part sea creature, but then they also have the potential to be human. And most of them kind of live in fear of that human side. Um, but, you know, the movie is in many ways about Luca sort of discovering that human part of himself and, you know, learning to overcome that, that fear that his family has of being part of the human world. Um, so, you know, there's, again, it's a very simple story, but I do think it is the kind of story that lends itself to, because it is, you know, because it is a pretty simple, straightforward story, it almost comes off as like a parable and it sort of lends itself to interpretation. And, you know, certainly I've seen articles about how people are, you know, interpreting it as, as it could be a story about you know, discovering one's uh, sexuality, for example. Um, and again, I don't think any of that is really overt uh, in the movie, but um, it certainly is a movie that you could draw different meanings from depending on how you view it and what experiences you bring into the movie. Um, but I found, I found Luca to be uh, just a very pleasant film. It, it visually is incredible. It's got bright colors. It's got really, really cool animation. It's got just some incredible sort of depictions of the ocean and ocean life and sort of the beaches and the village that border the ocean where Luca lives. Um, so it has some really amazing moments and, and sequences visually. Um, and then it's just kind of a sweet story about this boy finding friendship and um, it sort of has a lot of moments that evoke those kind of childhood friendships where, you know, two kids who are sort of lost souls find each other and, you know, become stronger because of that, that friendship. And it has a lot of, again, those moments that evoke like the feelings of discovery you have when you're a kid and you're going to a place you've never been before um, or trying things out for the first time and having new new experiences um, and sort of figuring out like who you are as a person. So it's those very universal themes of childhood uh, that are in the film. And um, yeah, I wouldn't say like, to me, this isn't the kind of movie like a Wally that just absolutely blew me away and would end up, you know, on my like best of the year list in the top 10 or something. Um, but again, it's a very, uh, sweet uh you know uh pleasant movie uh it's it's incre incredible from a visual standpoint and it's uh the kind of story that again like kids i think will really dig um 
and just find themselves relating to Luca and finding this to be a meaningful story because again, it's a movie that really captures feelings of childhood. So uh, definitely worth a watch, uh, whether you're a kid or an adult. Um, you know, I think there's something that everyone will get out of it, but I do think it will ultimately resonate the most with with younger kids. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed Luca a lot. I'm glad I watched it, and uh, I definitely give it a recommendation. I mean, look, uh, Pixar, they're so good. Anything they do is worth a watch, but uh, Luca definitely enjoyable and uh i would say check it out all right so my third and final pick of the week is a tv uh mini series that recently aired uh on the a and e network and um you know the a and e network their their signature show for a long time has been a and e biography and i feel like i don't know the a and e network like i won't get too into it but i feel like they're a network that probably has struggled a bit in recent years with their identity um you know they've tried all different kinds of programming they've had you know uh, really great prestige uh, scripted programming in recent in the recent past like Bates Motel which is one of my favorite shows of the last you know 10 15 years um but then they've also kind of in in more recent years just been doing a lot of like reality stuff and um I I personally don't think I've watched anything on A&E for quite a while but they've sort of brought back biography and I don't even know to be honest maybe they've been doing biography this whole time and I just haven't been paying attention, but they certainly have been clearly aiming recently for like my uh, 30-something male demographic with their biographies because, uh, you know, they were doing this whole series of WWE biographies, which I think I've mentioned before on the podcast, that were really good. And they were like, you know, each one looked at a different wrestler and they did one about you know, Bret Hart, one about Shawn Michaels, one about Mick Foley, and they were all really good. And I was recording and watching them every week for several weeks that they ran. And then they sort of seed right from that into a two-part biography all about the, the classic rock band Kiss. And so they must have been like, all right, this, uh, this like, you know, millennial slash gen x uh male demo is really working for us um probably you know if i'm being honest they're probably going for the slightly older demo than even myself um i'm probably a bit of a anomaly in that i'm a i'm a elder millennial who has cable and uh you know loves classic rock from the 70s and and, and 80s um, but I, I do love that music. I love, and I also love rock docs. So I remember back in the day, I used to watch all the VH1 behind the music episodes. Um, I love reading like in Rolling Stone magazine and elsewhere kind of, you know, the, the long kind of, uh, articles about rock bands and their histories. And, uh, you know, I was really curious because they were really hyping up this this Kiss uh, biography that they were calling uh, Kistery, of course. Um, uh, but this special two-part supersized edition of any biography. And I was really curious about it. I was excited to watch it because, you know, I think Kiss is just a really fascinating band, in my opinion. And I've always been so fascinated with like their rise to, to, you know, stardom in the seventies and then kind of all the different transformations and evolutions they've had over the years as a band. And what I like about this A&E doc is that, cause I always get frustrated in these documentaries or articles or whatever, when they only cover like, the prime years of the band because to me some of the most interesting stories are like 
what happened after their heyday and what were some of the albums like, you know, in more recent years and, and what happened, you know, after their, their peak of popularity. Um, and so by having this four hour documentary, uh, they really can get into all of that. And, you know, the first part of the documentary, the first two hours were really about kind of the, the, uh, early biographies of, you know, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, which again, if you're not familiar, I mean, is always fascinating to me because they were these two very poor Jewish kids living in New York. Gene Simmons had actually been born in Israel and his, his family had emigrated to, to New York city. And he and Paul Stanley met each other uh, when they were young and bonded. And, you know, the whole story of kiss is that these two sort of outcast nerdy Jewish kids um, found each other and put on this makeup and became this larger than life rock band and essentially like real life comic book characters. Um, and they sort of used their imaginations and became something much greater than they ever could have imagined uh, when they were when they were young. And um, it's just a cool story, in my opinion. So the first part of the documentary kind of covered that in the early years of the band and kind of took you through the height of their popularity in the, in like the mid to late seventies in the original incarnation of the band when they had Ace Freely and Peter Chris uh, as part of the, the foursome that originally comprised kiss. And then it sort of ends as all these tensions are starting to brew in kind of the late seventies and Peter Chris and Ace Freely are both getting into a lot of drugs and alcohol. And um, and then the band is also starting to get away from the more straightforward rock music that made them popular. They're experimenting with like disco music and, uh, you know, more, you know, more pop type stuff. And they're becoming all about the merchandising and less about the music. And so the first episode sort of ends there and then the second part of the documentary you know takes you through kind of all the new members that came into the band and um you know some of the ups and downs there and then through the 80s you know there was this crazy period where kiss was becoming kind of more of a hair metal type of band they were sort of following the lead of Bon Jovi and others that were breaking through at that time. And then as part of that, they ended up reinventing themselves without the makeup. And, uh, you know, it was a really weird fit as they kind of talk about in the documentary in some ways, because, uh, you know, you had like Gene Simmons, who was this huge, like broad shouldered, you know, six foot two, you know, 250 pound dude trying to look like a glam rock star. And it was just a strange fit. Um, but, you know, they did have some hit songs during that period, like uh, the classic uh, lick it up, which is a, a, a favorite from the eighties. Uh, but then, you know, then in the nineties, and this is where I remember as a kid really getting into kiss is in sort of the late, mid to late nineties, I think it was around like 97 kiss finally after I think 15 uh, or so years had this big comeback with the full makeup and they were suddenly like more popular than ever. Um, and I remember as a kid, they, you know, I think it was maybe the, the Grammy awards where they like came out in the full makeup and they brought back actually the original members for a, a period uh, Peter, Chris, and Ace Freely, and they just had this huge world tour, and, um, you know, there was this whole thing of nostalgia for that version of the band, and uh, that's when I remember I bought my first, like, Kiss album, and, you know, later on, I, I saw them in concert, and I think it was, like, 2003 when they toured with Aerosmith, um, and then I subsequently saw them a few more times in more recent years, 
Um, and so then the second part of the documentary kind of builds towards, you know, this kind of end of the road tour that they're doing now, which, you know, has been extended and extended and then extended even more because of COVID. Um, but, it, but in theory, at least this is their final swan song tour. Um, but yeah, I found it to be a really, uh, compelling biography and documentary and, there's, uh, you know, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley are both like really interesting people and really good speakers and, you know, agree or disagree with everything they say. And I'm sure there's people who will watch and say like, oh, they were skewing it in favor of Paul and Gene and they weren't giving a fair shake to Ace Freely and Peter Chris. But regardless of that, I mean, they're just so uh, charismatic as personalities and so interesting to hear them speak. So I really enjoyed it. Um, and then you have other talking heads like Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters was a big talking head. Uh, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. Um, so a lot of interesting kind of people talking about their experiences with Kiss. And there was a lot of cool like archival footage as well, you know, from all the different periods. I will say every time I see footage of Kiss in the 70s, like, a lot of times they get knocked for not being great musically, which I'd never understood because, um, you know, they have so many classic songs and, and then they've always been a great concert band. And especially like that early footage of them from the mid to late seventies, you can tell they were just putting on these incredible shows that were like nothing people had seen before. And I can say that the shows I've seen them, even in, in later years with, you know, revised lineups, uh, they put on incredible shows and, and they're a lot of fun to see live. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I would say if you're a classic rock fan or a Kiss fan or just like good, you know, rock docs, um, I would seek out, you know, on demand or, or wherever um, this two part documentary because it was really cool and it was one of the one of the better recent rock docs that i've watched um so it certainly goes in depth you know it spans the whole career of the band which is cool um and yeah i enjoyed it a lot so the history uh a e biography special definitely recommend it and uh yeah as homer simpson said you know i used to rock and roll all night and party every day and uh and now i'm forgetting the rest of the quote but uh it's basically like now i rock and roll uh part of the day and you know party on on once a month or something so that's where i'm at um a i can't rock and roll like i used to and b can't even remember the full simpsons quote uh but on that note uh, i will leave you for this week i'll be back next week with more and thank you again for listening. Peace out, everybody.